Praise God. Would you join me in welcoming our Zoomers? Welcome, Zoomers! Praise God. Lovely to have you, all of you online. So we pray that the Lord would bless you and bless each and every one of us as we gather in the name of the Lord. And we pray that God speaks to each and every one of us. I must admit, um, you know, I, I want to share in the book of Jude this morning, and uh, it's not the most popular book. It's not often you hear ministry from the book of Jude. In fact, it's often been described as one of the most ignored books in the New Testament. And uh, it's a beautiful book. I, I read it about 20 times. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It's only one chapter, but I read it in every version I could possibly find. And uh, to my utter amazement and surprise... I found that um, it was the Living Bible that expressed and explained very clearly um, what, uh, what the passage was about. I'm just going to take a little bit of the reverb off here. Just hold on a sec. Why did I touch it? Okay. So um, I was. No, 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 no. fixed it. <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> but uh, I was going to uh, read the entire 25 verses this morning because I felt it was really applicable and I got really excited about it. And I started preparing and I wrote out my notes and I looked down and, and there was just like masses and mass notes, you know. I thought, I can never get all this into a Sunday. And um, so it's gone through many re revisions and reductions to get it down to something that uh, could be used in the Sunday service. Uh, but it is a very powerful book. Uh, it's also a very controversial book. Um, and, uh, but there's wonderful truths that are expressed that are really applicable for us today. <clears throat> the first thing I want to draw your attention to when you look at the book of Jude, and, uh, and I really would encourage you to go home and Google uh, the Living Bible uh, and, read, and read Jude. It's only 25 verses, but it expresses very powerfully uh, the, the, the heart of God over this issue. But uh, in the uh, first and last verses, uh, because of, of course um, Jude is going to be dealing with apostasy, uh, and But in the first and last verses of, of this little book, we are told that we are going to be kept by the power of God. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Apostasy may come, heresies may come, but the Holy Spirit is going to keep us through them all. So we don't need to be afraid of that. And in fact, verse 24 of the King James says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding glory. Joy, shall I say. Do you know that uh, God wants to preserve us and it's his joy to do that and we'll be absolutely uh, celebrating in his goodness. So the promise is that though apostates will arise and heresies will come, the Holy Spirit is going to keep us from falling if you stay close to the Lord. And I, I will close with, with a comment of why I say if we stay close to the Lord at the end of this message. But the truth is, we've got nothing to fear from the apostates if we are like the Bereans. Remember in Acts 17, 11, uh, they, they actually checked out everything that Paul said to see whether they were true or not. And so that's one of the best defenses we have against apostasy is the word of God. I want to give you a short background on the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is, is an abbreviation of the word Judas. 
And so one of Jesus' brothers was called Judas in the Greek. And it literally means uh, someone who uh, has betrayed the Lord by apostatizing. That's what he is going to tell us about. So a little play on words that Judas is going to tell us about uh, those who betrayed the Lord by apostatizing. Jude, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that while Jesus was on earth and doing his ministry, his brothers didn't really believe in him. They kind of mocked him and said, oh, you know, you need to go up to the feast. You know, it's a big, big time for you. And uh, they, were, they weren't really followers of Christ. But after the resurrection, after his death, burial, and resurrection, how many know that all changed? And in fact, uh, uh, James is the half-brother of, of Jesus as well as Jude. And they, they wrote the epistles, the epistle of James and the epistle of Jude, where they claimed to be servants of Jesus Christ. So after Jesus rose from the dead, even his brothers and his family came to put their trust and their faith in him and became servants of Christ. I want to give you a little overview to, to point out where we're going this morning and to help you understand some of the things that we'll be talking about. And I, I came across uh, Dr. Andy Woods, who is a professor uh, of Bible theology in, in Dallas, uh, Texas, and he gives us a very simple outline. I thought, that's a brilliant outline. I can use that. And so he talks about the demand, the description, the defense, and the doxology. So verses 1 to 4 explains how he was compelled to write this book. And we'll look at that in a little while. Verses fifteen, sorry, 5 through 16 is the description and explains what an apostate is. Verses 17 through 23 is the defense and explains how we can defend ourselves against false teaching. And finally, the doxology explains that uh, though false teachers may come and make it harder for us, they cannot derail our faith in Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. And so while I was looking at this, I came across something that Dr. Mistler said, and I thought, gee, I've got to include that. And, and he said, you know, the book of Jude could be subtitled, The Acts of the Apostates. And, uh, you know, as the book of Acts is the, the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning of the church age, so the book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates at the end of the church age. It works absolutely beautifully because it goes into the book of Revelation from there. And so what is an apostate? What, well, who are the apostate? The Bible lists three categories of people, false teachers, false prophets, and false brethren. Brothers can be apostates as well. So it's important to understand that not everybody who goes to church or stands in a pulpit or tries to teach is a true follower of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so the result is that we have to examine whatever is said uh, in the name of the Lord. When people are speaking about the Lord, we need to measure it up against the Word of God. And again, uh, the Bereans did that. They, they sought uh, the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And if there ever was a time for the church to be practicing this, it's today. Our best defense, therefore, is the Word of God. And that's why it's absolutely imperative that we uh, actually become familiar with what it teaches. And I hope you're reading your Bible every day. But don't believe it just because somebody said it, you know, uh, because it comes from the pulpit. Does it line up with the Word of God? So you've got to check everything I say. Uh, and don't just take it because, oh, you know, Robbie's a nice guy. He wouldn't lead it, uh, mislead it. I wouldn't. But, you know, I can be, uh, I am fallible. I can make mistakes. And so I try not to. And so that's why we in the injunction uh, in the book of Acts to check everything lines up with the word of God. Can you say amen? Yes, amen. 
Let me say from the outset, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. Uh, you know, I believe that we are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and that no man can pluck us out of God's hands. But uh, if we uh, get involved in sin and continue in sin and, and deliberately sin and just go down that road, we can come to a place where we actually renounce our faith. Once you start on that path, you don't know where it's going to end up. And that's why it, it's possible for us to renounce our faith and become apostates. So uh, we need to understand that. So Jude starts out, and he wants to uh, write a letter. He says, I'm, I wanted to write this letter according to the common salvation. So he wanted to write a, a great letter like the Apostle Paul and say, Hey, man, wonderful things are happening. This is what Christ has done for you. He wanted to talk about our common salvation. Um, but as you read that particular verse, uh, and he says um, you know, that he was compelled to write about defending the faith. And so he wanted to, to, to reach a, a, write about a real rousing letter, but he felt the Holy Spirit saying, no, it's important that you write a letter about defending the faith. And, uh, you know, if, if you're going to belong to a church, you need to be part of a church that preaches the whole counsel of God. I don't expect many amens and hallelujahs today, but this is the counsel of the Lord, and we need to teach it because it's in the Word of God. Can you say amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So... And, and the reason that he was compelled uh, to, to write this letter um, is found in verse 4, okay? And I'm reading it from the New Living uh, Translation because, as I said, I, I read all the different versions, and this, is, this translation is the best translation of this verse. It says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, in the King James, it talks about the, the fact that these people who have wormed their way into, into the churches have uh, turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And that's an old-fashioned word, but it actually means wanton filthiness. It's speaking about perversion and corruption and sin of every kind. And so uh, it's saying that these people have come into the church and say, hey, it's okay to sin because God's grace will cover it. And, uh, you know, basically that's what they were saying. They think they have a license to sin because of grace, that they can do what they like without fear of judgment. God says an emphatic no. The condemnation of such people, these people, was written a long time ago. The word condemnation is the Greek word krima, and it means not only judgment, but damnation. And so what this is saying is that the damnation of these wicked people who sought to pervert and turn the, turn the church into a, 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 sin, a house of sin, he said these people will be damned, and it was written a long time ago. So God's judgment uh, is very swift and severe because these people were deliberately perverting the grace of God, deliberately trying to lead people astray with their damnable heresies. And God's judgment is swift and severe. And this is why Jude is writing this little letter, to warn believers to be lookout on the lookout for apostasy. You know, ever since Paul actually introduces the doctrine of grace, there were those that were trying to pervert this message and, and uh, you know, trying to make it mean whatever they wanted to mean. They're really wolves in sheep's clothing, you know, uh, creeping uh, around with their lies and deception, trying to deceive uh, the people of God. Saying, it's okay to sin because, you know, God's grace covers it. 
And you still hear that same kind of thinking today if you keep your ears up and you, oh, you know, I can do it. I remember I was in church uh, in England and I happened to come across a, a conversation. The guy that was talking had his back to me and he didn't know what I was approaching. And he was talking about one of the ladies in the church that he would like to sleep with. This is a man of God in the church talking about who he wants to sleep with. And then he said, and then I'll just ask God for forgiveness. This is the kind of thing that, that, that is very relevant in, in the church today. So, you know, they say, oh, where sin abounds, grace much more. We need to be very careful. Paul powerfully refuted this heresy when he wrote the letter to the Romans. Remember? He said in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the very heart of this question. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer thereon? So he refutes most emphatically uh, this distortion of grace, this perversion of grace that has come into the church. And so now we're going to look at verses 5 through 16, and we're going to look at the description and explain what an apostate is. And there are actually two trilogies of examples of what an apostate is. And uh, I got so excited and, and as I said, wrote screeds. And, um, but so for the sake of time, we're just going to look at the first trilogy because it explains it very sufficiently. Um, but the first uh, example is from the life of Israel. They are rebel believers and the, who apostatized. The second example is from the angels that fell. These were rebels from heaven. And the third example is uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they were the rebels of this world. These three ex examples certain, uh, show the certainty of God's judgment against these dangerous practices. And it shows that God will always prevail. God will protect his church. And when people come in and try to pervert grace, you can understand that God's judgment is going to come upon them very quickly. It's a very dangerous thing that we need to be aware of. God will always be victorious in his church. Can you say amen? amen. So let's read uh, verses uh, 4 and 5 again just for context. I say this because some godless teachers have wormed their way in among you, saying that after we become Christians, we can do just as we like without fear of God's punishment. The fate of such people was written long ago, for they have turned against the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. My answer to them, verse 5, is, Remember this fact, which you already know, that the Lord saved a whole nation of people out of the land of Egypt and then killed every one of them who did not trust and obey him. Wow. Now you can see why this is not such a popular message, uh, that people don't get excited about this, but uh, uh, that's what he says. And... Uh, so here we get our first insight as to what an apostate is. It's a very simple explanation as we start, but it says uh, it'll get you started. An apostate is someone who does not trust and obey God. Can you say amen? An apostate is someone who does not trust and obey God. Will you say that? An apostate is? Someone who does not trust and obey God. Amen. And so... Uh, so we see that there's these three examples that are given, um, but they're all from the Old Testament. And I hear some of you say, oh, but they're from the Old Testament. We're not under the law, but under grace. 
You know, so we need to deal with that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 is an entire chapter devoted uh, to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And, 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 and a very important verse is actually found in verse 11. It says, now all these things, and it's referring to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Now all these things happened unto them for examples and are written for our admonition. They're written for our warning. That's what the word admonition means. And so our warning upon whom the ends of the world are come. How many believe that we're living in the last days? Oh, yes. Amen. And so this is a warning that is particularly relevant to you and I today. Uh, and it's a warning to look at, at, at Israel. And we're going to do that. You know, I, I've heard people say, you know, I don't need the Old Testament. I'm not under law, but I'm under grace. You know, it sounds spiritual, but it's just wrong. It's garbage. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, uh, Romans uh, 15, 4, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All these scriptures and others actually speak about the importance of the entire word of God, that we need to know that. And in fact, it's safe to say if you don't understand the Old Testament properly, you can't adequately understand the New Testament. Can you say amen? So, let's look at Israel. The question then becomes, was Israel saved? And is this a good parallel for us to study? And the answer is yes. Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb, the Passover. They passed from death unto life. Egypt was a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Moses, the deliverer, is a type of Christ. You've got uh, the pillar of, of cloud, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. And on and on you can go. The Red Sea is a type of baptism. The manna, the bread of life that they received in the desert, is a type of Eucharist or the breaking of bread and, and so on. So we can see that, uh, that it very is a, a very clear presentation of the gospel. Remember also that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. So way before this, the gospel was preached unto them. And now it's preached again uh, in, to Israel through the, the Passover lamb. And it points us to Jesus. And so we can say very emphatically that Israel was saved in, in that sense. Um, and so they make a perfect example for us to study. Now, um, the thing that we, we need to understand is Israel was saved, but where were they going? To the promised land. Remember? They were going to the promised land. I need to clear up some misconceptions uh, that, that some of you may have or may not have. But uh, because of popular songs, that people kind of get this, these issues confused. You know, they, they talk about when you die, you're crossing over the River Jordan, you know, and uh, what a day of rejoicing that'll be in, you know. Um, and, and, or they say that, that uh, the promised land is a type of heaven. And neither of those two statements is true. Uh, it, it, crossing the, the Jordan is not a, a, a death experience. It doesn't refer to death. And it is definitely not a type of heaven. Why? Because in, in the promised land, you have battles to fight. There are victories to be won. There are defeats that are happened. How many know that there was also sin in the promised land? Oh, yes. And so very clearly that this is not a type of heaven. So what does the promised land represent? In fact, the Bible actually tells us that this represents Israel's inheritance. How many are glad that you've got an inheritance in Christ? Amen. Amen. So this is one place where we can get excited in the book of Jude because it, it explains that we have uh, an inheritance that we can experience. Okay. So, uh, so this, the, the, the promised land really represents Israel's inheritance. So we are not talking about heaven here, but rather Israel's inheritance. And Jude wants to draw our attention to Israel's apostasy. 
Remember what an apostate is? An apostate is somebody who does not obey and trust God. Was there ever a time that Israel did not trust and obey God? Well, yes, there was. When they, when they refused to go into the promised land is probably the, the best example. Remember what they said? Oh, they're giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We cannot take it. You can read about it in Numbers 13. Man, we can't take this land. And, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it really was a, a real battle for Joshua and Caleb who were trying to convince the people that God was with them, that they could go into the promised land and, and reap their inheritance, that there was a reward that God uh, had for us and that, uh, that God wanted to do amazing things. And this conversation between Caleb and Joshua um, was, is recorded in Numbers 14. And it's a very interesting little passage. I want to read from Numbers 14 and verse 9. And again, it's, it's Joshua and Caleb encouraging the people to believe. They say, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye his, the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. And you know what these wonderful mighty men and women of faith said? Let's stone them. Let's stone them. You know, here the, here the men, who would want to be a leader in the body of Christ? We saw last week Paul was trying to help the people and they wanted to tear him limb from limb. Now Joshua and Caleb wanting to be stoned because they're trying to encourage people to believe God. Ooh. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. I think that was the only thing that saved Joshua and Caleb. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And so we can see very clearly the promised land is Israel's inheritance. He says, I'm going to disinherit them and I will make of thee a great nation mightier than they are. Moses being the great intercessor said, Lord, please forgive them. And we pick up the conversation in verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them. Isn't that wonderful? God's forgiveness. But how many know that there's a difference between forgiveness and God's government? The government of God is different from forgiveness. You, you might be forgiven, but you might still have to face the consequences of your actions. If you murder somebody and you go to their family, you might be forgiven if you're extremely lucky. But how many of you know you're still going to have to face the consequences for your action? The government is going to ensure that. And the government of God is exactly the same way. And so uh, God says, I'm going to smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a great nation. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Verse 21. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me these ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on an oath to their fathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So they were forgiven, but they lost their inheritance. Man, what a lesson that is for us as New Testament believers. You know, we might be forgiven, but we can lose our inheritance. Wow, what a warning. 
And you know, they wandered in the, in the desert for how long? For 40 years until every last apostate had died out. They weren't going into the promised land. They weren't going to get what God had promised them because of their apostasy. You know, the, today there are people who will not trust God, nor will they obey the Lord. They're living in sin and going to church. Can you believe that? People living in sin, going to church, doing as they please. They're thinking, oh, I know I'm not married, but it's okay. Uh, God loves me. He wants me to be happy, you know. Uh, they think grace will cover them. No, no, no. A thousand times no. It's really very sad. They might be saved going to heaven because they believe in Jesus. But the warning from Israel in 1 Corinthians 10 is simply that they will be severely disciplined. There are people that are living and going to church these days that are, are living in sin and they think nothing of it. They don't understand that they're going to be judged by the Lord. They will be disciplined severely by the Lord and possibly they will lose their inheritance. What's that mean? They will go to heaven as bankrupts. With no inheritance at all. Remember what, what Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, your, your, your life is, again, all your works are going to be tried. Some are going to be wood, hay and stubble. And they'll be burnt up and there'll be nothing left. Those who apostatize uh, but still believe in Jesus will lose their inheritance. It will all be consumed by the fire. Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, God will not turn a blind eye to our sin. He disciplines those he loves. How I many you know discipline cannot, can be very unpleasant at times? I, well, you, you guys are so angelic, you wouldn't know. But I was disciplined many times as a child, and I can testify. Discipline is not fun. It's not a nice thing to experience. <laughs> Hallelujah. After Christ has suffered and agonized on the cross because of our behalf, he took our place. He was crucified for our sins. There was no sin in him. He was just, wasn't he? He gave his life, the just for the unjust. We were the unjust. Are we so foolish to think now that we can do whatever we like without consequences? That would make all the warnings and admonitions of Scripture vanish into thin air. The warnings would be made null and void, meaningless. But do you remember what Jesus said? In, in Luke 21, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, nothing is going to be voided. Nothing is going to be left undone that God has spoken. And so we, we can experience God's discipline if we're not careful. And that's why Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. You know, sometimes we, we like to make that word an, or a reverential awe. And there is a context in which that, that is true. But this passage means you're terrified of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know what it is to tremble? It's because you're terrified. And he's saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hey, if Jesus paid for all my sins, what do I have to fear? Good question. The Lord's correction, the Lord's chastisement, the Lord's discipline, and maybe even the loss of our inheritance if we're not careful. You can see why this book is largely ignored. <laughs> People don't like talking about these things. You know, it's, it's very uncomfortable. And, and I hope you'll love me after this, you know, and, and not collect stones while I'm preaching. But you know, uh, it's very important that we see um, uh, that 
this truth is illustrated. The second illustration is uh, of an apostate, is about sinning angels. And here I must warn you, we're entering into the twilight zone. We're getting into some very strange and controversial stuff. Um, And, you know, we're going to talk about, in fact, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Uh, And let me say to you, there are different interpretations of this passage. And whatever uh, position we have, we shouldn't fall out with our brothers and sisters uh, over this. We don't become devices over, the, over this issue. This is not a salvation issue. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You know, the truth is, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. But it tells us what we need to know. And this is one of the, the books that we would love more information about. And, and, and to be quite frank, there isn't as much information as we would like, and therefore we have these different interpretations that are, have emerged. And so it's very important that we look at it. Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. The Bible makes it quite plain that Satan has two groups of angels. Those that are are waging war against God and the kingdom of God and those who are bound uh, here and uh, are awaiting judgment. And so there are only two passages in the whole of the New Testament that talk about angels sinning. The first one is in Jude that we've just read and the second one is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. And I'd like to read it for you because there's an interesting little insight that we gain from this. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Remember that these angels have been brought down to hell. Very interesting. These are not the usual words for hell. This is not Sheol in the Old Testament, and it's not Hades, and it's not Gehenna. In fact, this word is only found once ever in the New Testament because it refers to a very special place. Uh, it's, the, it's the Greek word Tartarus. The root of it is Tartarus. And it refers to the lowest place in hell. And it's, it's really uh, the prison house for fallen angels. Tartarus is the maximum security prison for fallen angels, if you like. Designed especially to hold them at bay. So, the question arises then, why are some angels bound while others are free to continue their war against God? And since the Apostle Peter mentions the judgment of the flood and the the chaining of these uh, angels in the same passage, many commentators like uh, Dr. Jeffers and others actually say that these two events are linked. Excuse me, I just need to... Many Bible commentators uh, have that particular view. Uh, These scholars believe that the angels who left heaven became known as the sons of God, Genesis 6-4. They cohabited with the daughters of of men and produced giants in the land, the Nephilim. And, uh, you know, it was a time of unprecedented violence and corruption and and sin and debauchery where the thoughts and imaginations of man's heart was only evil uh, continually, Genesis 6-5. And the flood was God's judgment for this apostasy. 
The angels came down and introduced this, this wave of, of, of sin and iniquity that was just spread uh, like wildfire through the whole world. And God actually judged this apostasy. There's an interesting side note that I want you to think with me. The angels' sinful pursuit of freedom led to this incarceration. What a lesson for us. Their sinful pursuit of freedom leads to bondage. When we go after the things that we really want, that are forbidden by God, it will lead to our bondage as well. Just an interesting side thought, you know. Who are the sons of God? Okay. Uh, Dr. Peter Gentry points out this phrase, sons of God. The, the liturgy uh, uh, has only occurred five times in the Old uh, Testament in, in, the, in this form, the sons of God. And each time um, he says uh, that it refers to angelic beings. You can check them out if you have a concordance. Um, I, I did, and I agree with him. So uh, it's interesting. I also found this comment by David Pawson. He thinks this is when the occult got started in the human race. Occultism, perverted sex, violence. Does it sound familiar? It's because judgment is close at hand. Incidentally, the name Nephilim, these giants, yeah, could mean giants or fallen ones. Because of the terrible wickedness of these angels cohabiting with man, they were hunted down and imprisoned in Tartarus to await their final judgment before being thrown into the lake of fire. Thank God those people that were responsible for, for this unprecedented wave of sin before the flood have, are, are imprisoned and are not allowed to corrupt anymore. Other, pe other people argue that uh, this is not the case. This is not uh, the angels who uh, cohabited with, with the sons and daughters of, of men. Uh, but they say it was the, rather the godly lion, Seth, get my teeth back in. Uh, I don't wear false teeth. <laughs> but, um, you know, they say it was the godly line of Seth who cohabited with the daughters of, of the Canaanites. And it was this ungodly, forbidden union that produced the giants, uh, the Nephilim. Well, you know, godly men have married a wicked woman uh, all through history and vice versa. And they never seem to uh, produce uh, terrible giants, do they? So I, 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 I struggle to uh, accept this as an interpretation uh, for, for what is going on here. I think that the first answer is more, more plausible. But what is not in dispute is that these angels who left their first estate, in other words, they rebelled, are bound waiting the final judgment because they did not obey God, they apostatized. There is a very solemn warning to us. That these angels were in the presence of God on a daily basis, in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. There's, the lesson is this, that no matter who you are, or what you've done for God in the past. If you apostatize and renounce your faith in God, you will end up in hell. You know, we don't hear much teaching about hell in the church today. But hell is a very real place. Hell is uh, the, to be shunned and heaven to be gained. That's what we've got to pursue. Do you still love me? Oh, yes, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay. So, the second warning is, anyone who troubles God's church... Is going to be judged. Whether you're angel or whoever, you trouble God's church and God's judgment is going to come on you because God protects those he loves. 
God will watch over us to protect us and let no harm before us. I remember when Fee was, was pregnant and she just had, had, had son. She'll be about uh, eight days um, since she, she'd given birth to, to Rich. And we went up to a, a place, a, a wildlife reserve, and uh, we were encased by probably, uh, there was an elephant, a bull elephant that walked right into the road, and, and we had to stop. And he was like the boss. He was huge. He was bigger than, than the, the rafters here. And his ears are flapping like this, and he's looking at us. And, um, you know, we thought, oh, you know, I'm going to reverse. And I turned around to reverse. And suddenly there must have been 200, 300 elephants coming through. They were behind us. They were in front of us. And uh, Fee was feeling so protective. She was ready to get out and sort those elephants out. And, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, that, that, that maternal instinct to protect and I'm telling you, God feels the same way about his people. When we, when we bring harm to the body of Christ, the, 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 uh, the Father heart of God rises up and he will judge those who bring uh, about harm to the body of Christ. Can you say amen? I'm intrigued to know what happened. I grabbed feet by the end and said, sit. <laughs> we sat still and they walked off. <laughs> they finally moved off, yes. Okay. So the last illustration we'll look at, uh, which really defines what an apostate is, is Jude chapter 1 and verse 7. And it says this, And don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, uh, all full of lust of every kind, including the lust of men for other men. Those cities were destroyed by fire and continue to be a warning for us. This is the New Testament. Those cities were destroyed by fire and continue to be a warning for us that there is a hell in which sinners are punished. These were the ungodly who would not trust or obey God. They would have nothing to do with it, and they pursued their sinful lifestyle and, and as a result, God's judgment fell upon the fire of God, fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, these, today, these same apostates are in the world today and they've criminalized this kind of talking. They've called it hate speech because they don't want anybody talking about the judgment that is going to come upon them for their evil and wicked lifestyle. And so they've gone to the, the, the courts and, and banished. And, and actually, you can get into a lot of trouble uh, if you're convicted of hate speech. We have these laws in this country. And uh, it, it's a terrible and a wicked thing. And today, the apostates are everywhere. Did you know that one in three ministers in the Church of England... Clergy, I'm talking about, not people in the church. One in three, that's a third of all clergy in the Church of England uh, doubt or disbelieve the physical resurrection of Christ. One third. 50% of them don't believe in the virgin birth. 50% of ministers of clergy. Remember the, the head bishop doesn't. The Archbishop of York in 2017 renounced the truth of the Bible and, and actually um, he, he said the teachings of, uh, of the Bible are, are not accurate and he's not going to have any part of them. This is the leadership in the church. Today. How relevant is the book of Jude today? It's an important book that we need to be studying and understanding. You see, this is rank apost uh, 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 apostasy. These people who don't believe in the virgin birth and the physical resurrection. There's so much else that they don't believe, but I won't even go into it. These people are wolves in sheep's clothing, spreading lies and, and, and deceiving people. 
You know, this this so-called clergy are part of the synagogue of Satan. And they need to be defrocked and thrown out of the church. There's no place for people like that in the true body of Christ. And everyone said, Amen. 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 So, how relevant is the book of Jude now? It's for us. We need to be checking everything that's said from any pulpit according to the word of God. Okay, now we come to the defense as we bring this to a close. The defense explains how we can defend ourselves against false teaching, how we can avoid the apostates. And as I've already said, Acts 17.11 is your best defense. Check everything that comes from the pulpit to see if it lines up with the word of God. The Bible... Acts 17, 11. Oh, Acts 17, 11. Basically, paraphrase, check everything from from the Bible. The Bible is our final authority. You cannot trust anything that people say, whether it comes from pulpits or not. You know, the right reverend with all his bells and smells and robes and titles can be just as lost and deceived as the harlot, the drunkard, and the liar. And that's why we need to take special care whenever we're listening to somebody who's speaking in the name of the Lord that whatever they say lines up with the Word of God. Believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Believe in the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Plenary means absolute. The absolute inspiration of Scripture. It's infallible. It's never failing. It's inerrant, without flaw, without failure, without error. And if you believe in the Word of God as perfect and obey it, you will never be deceived. Amen? The next step in defense is found in, in, in verse 17. Dear friends, remember what apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told you? That in the last times, hello, that there would come these scoffers whose, whose whole purpose in life is to enjoy themselves in every evil way imaginable. They stir up arguments They love the evil things of the world. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. But you, dear friends, must build up your lives ever more strongly upon the foundation of our holy faith, learning to pray in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. One of the most important factors against apostasy is being spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled, being filled with the Holy Ghost, praying in other tongues. Because when you do that, you're communing with God. Remember 1 Corinthians 14, 2 says that he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. And so when you're praying in tongues, you're communing with God, and you are less likely to, to fall into apostasy because you're having constant fellowship with God. And that's why praying in tongues and being baptized in the Holy Spirit is so important. It's paramount for the church today. We should be encouraging everybody. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's another teaching. But it's important that we understand that. Because when you speak in tongues, you're not speaking to men, but you're speaking unto God. So verse 21, and we are almost finished. Stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. Hallelujah. Wait patiently for eternal life that our Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy is going to give you. Try to help those who argue against you. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save some by snatching them from the very flames of hell itself. And for others, help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. But be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sins. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to the sinners. Did you notice this? It says... uh, And as for those, help them find the Lord. 
It's a clear injunction for the church to witness to these apostates. We've got, to, we've got to tell them about the things of the Lord. But notice their heart attitude. We don't go out there and, and stone them. And, and, and he says uh, in, in, uh, that we, to, the heart attitude is really important, that we need to be helpful, kind, and merciful to these apostates. And we to witness the truth of the word of God to them. The last part of, of verse 23, and I draw your attention to this, hate every trace of sin while being merciful to them as sinners. This is an injunction to holiness. We need, to, we need to make sure that whatever we do, we, we're living a life of holiness. Don't get caught up in their sin. How many of you know if you, if you, you, know, you go into, into diets of iniquity, you go into brothels and you go into, you know, you, you can be tempted. And so you need to be very careful and wise in your, in your witness. Don't get caught up in their sin. If you're weak in that area, don't go there. Walk away if you have to, but don't get caught up in their sin. So let me just recap. How do we uh, defend ourselves against apostasy? We check everything by the word of God. We pray in tongues and we witness to people. We walk in holiness. This is how we defend the faith. This is how we actually are, are, are useful in the kingdom of God. And the doxology is the final part. It says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The epistle closes with God's promise to keep us. But if you notice in verse 21, and again at the beginning of the chapter, it says, keep yourselves uh, in the love of God. And so this is not a sovereign work where we can just relax and think, oh, well, God's going to keep me. No, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And if you keep yourselves in the love of God, the promise is that you will never fall. You will never stumble. God will uphold you. He will protect you. And so if we overemphasize God's part, um, then, then we could be in trouble. If we, uh, if we overemphasize man's part, we're in trouble. It's a, it's a fellowship. It's a partnership. We've got to do our part. And if we do our part, God promises to do his part. So Jude's message is that we must contend for the faith, preach the word of God, be a witness. The question is, is that what we are doing? Are we defending the faith? Are we uh, checking everything by the word of God? Are we praying in tongues? Are we witnessing to people? Are we walking in holiness? This is how we defend the faith. I want to give you a moment just to bow our heads in a word of prayer to consider our life. You want to say something before we do that, Julia? Verse 9. I haven't got it written down in my notes. Yeah. Yet Michael the archangel in contending ah. with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said the Lord rebuke you. Yeah. Okay, we, we, we can cover that. That's a big can of worms, um, and it's part of the second trilogy that, that because, uh, uh, because of time uh, I've left out. So, uh, but we, we probably will come back to the book of Jude at some later stage, and we'll look at the second trilogy uh, because it's such an important uh, message. So I, I would just like to encourage you to, to examine your life and just uh, consider what we've been saying. Are you praying in tongues? Are you witnessing? Are you walking in holiness? Are you speaking to people about the Lord? This is how we contend the faith. The question is, are we a contender or are we a pretender? Somebody is sailing under false colors because they're not doing these things. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer.
Father, this is such an important little book. And it is so relevant for the church today. It's not a very happy book. It's a sobering book. But Lord, we are not, we are not preaching to tickle people's ears, but to, to proclaim the truth of your word. And so, Lord, whether it's popular or unpopular, we are bound to preach the word of God. And so I pray, Lord, for each and every person that has their head bowed, that we would be a contender for the faith, that, Lord, we would be living holy, that we'd be uh, communing and fellowshipping with you by praying in tongues and being led by the Holy Spirit into all these things that you have for us, that we'd be witnesses. And so we pray. Lord, uh, for, for us to, to really have the courage and the boldness to speak out and tell people their need of a loving Savior. And so, Lord, help us to be challenged by this. Help us to uh, take, take note of it and to um, be a contender for the faith. Lord, drive us into that position that we might be a contender for you in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.